0: Now, last week, I left us in suffering. And that's a subject that we would do well with to visit later on and cover it much more thoroughly because Scripture is clear. If we are indeed the true church of the living God, we will see suffering. Certainly Christians do all around the world and have had for years. And without a doubt, our time is coming and I can't help but think Our time is coming very soon. But not only did I leave us in the context of suffering, I left us in the context of groaning. And when we think about that word, we immediately think negative because indeed you do see two types of groaning in the text. You see the Old Testament groaning which is really communicated as grumbling. And grumbling is always met with judgment for God. We have no reason to grumble. We've been saved. And yet when we do groan or grumble in that context, we dishonor God. So we we can never do that. Yet the groaning that Paul was talking about in Romans 8 where I left us last week is a good groaning. It's a groaning that realizes who we are, yet who we will be in His presence. It's a groaning that understands the time that we're in, and yet the time that is coming. And inwardly, we so eagerly wait for that day, it's described as groaning awaiting the second Coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So while we're in this really bizarre period of time, while we're in this interim period of time that we exist having been saved and yet waiting upon our final and full salvation, our Heavenly Father has done in Romans 8 three wonderful things for us to safely see us through to the kingdom of God. Now let me tell you where I want you to go this morning and hopefully the Spirit will take you not only here but to other thoughts, wonderful thoughts. But after I studied through this and prepared all this, there was two things that immediately popped up in my heart and the first one was worship. When I think about all that God has done for us, and helping us and seeing us through these difficult days in which we live, the only thing that I could do is praise Him because He is a faithful shepherd that has provided for our every need. And we say things like that. I'm just, you know, we just praise the Lord for He provides everything for us. But when you see it in the text and understand how it's taking place in your life, it makes per- uh, worship more personal and real. And so hopefully when I demonstrate these things for you in the text this morning, you'll have a heart of renewed worship towards your Father because He is a faithful Heavenly Father who has really provided everything, everything. The second thing that came to my heart and my mind that I hope comes to yours as well, if the Lord has chosen to do these three things for us, we have greatly underestimated our need for them and the importance of them. In other words, I asked the question, why would you do these things for us, Father? And immediately came to my mind, because you need them. Now, if we desperately need these things that I'm about to go through, the reality is that we are in a war. Now, certainly we've already talked about war in the context of Romans 8. You're at a war with your own sin. But there's another context in Scripture that's mentioned in Ephesians 6. We don't war against flesh and blood. We war against powers and principalities and authorities and spiritual places. Therefore, we are in a much more difficult time than we can even comprehend. In fact, I was reminded of a passage when I was thinking about this in Mark 13, where the Lord Jesus begins to speak of the very last days. And let me read just a part of this. You don't have to turn there. But hopefully it will help you understand how desperately we need these things for the Father to do for us. But Jesus says, For those days will be a time of tribulation which has not occurred since the very beginning of the creation which God has created until now, nor never will. Unless the Lord has shortened those days, no life would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those whom he has chosen, he has shortened those days. So if anyone says, Behold, here is the Christ, or Behold, he is there, do not believe him, for false Christ and false prophets will surely arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect or the children of God. Those are the last days. And it's going to be a very difficult number of days. And if we're not already in those days, which I don't think we are, but certainly we're on the cusp of those days. They are just around the corner. Tremendously difficult days. And he says in the text, if possible, to lead us astray. Theologically, we'd say that could never happen, but you do see the strain in the text. Therefore, God has done three things for us to keep us securely in His care. And so I hope that we can worship Him for this. Now, the first thing that God has done is He's given us hope. Now, this is the most difficult thing by far. I've struggled with trying to explain this time and time again. And finally, late last night, I scrapped what I had and I started all over And I trust the Lord has made it in a much more easier to understand way of communicating these things. But Paul says so much in the first seven words of verse 24. Look at verse 24 for me. Paul says, it's speaking through the Spirit, For in hope we have been saved. Now it seems simple enough, but Paul just transversed two time zones. The first one, the most easiest to understand, is the past tense, we have been saved. And if you're here this morning and you put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is true of you and it's expressed in a past tense way. You have been saved and we rejoice in our salvation. Yes, yes. Certainly there may be some young ones here, maybe perhaps, but the overwhelming majority of you, we understand what God has done for us through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary. We have been saved and in that we rest, right? But he adds a phrase before that where he says, in hope. In hope looks forward. So how in the world is Paul trying to communicate this, that we have a past tense experience in which we look forward? You see what he's doing there? He's helping us to understand that when we were saved, there was something that was tied together with our salvation. And what was tied together with our salvation is hope. In other words, God has placed hope in our hearts in order to get us through these difficult days. So let me try to explain it in this way. We have been saved in the sphere of or in the realm of hope. Our salvation exists in hope. And you're like, why would you say it that way? What's this fear of business? Because we not only have our salvation, we look forward to our salvation. Everything that we already have, we only have in part. We have yet to experience the fullness of those things. And so we look toward the fullness of those things with an attitude of hope. An unshakable hope. A hope that cannot be taken away or removed. And this is what God has done for us. He has saved us in hope. And so we live, if you will, in the sphere of, or if you like, in the room of hope because i got to talk about this thing in which we live because there's two sides to it. Don't let me lose you. You've past tense been saved in a four tense perspective of what's coming. So there's two realities that we need to understand in hope. And the first is the things in which we hope for. They're real. They're concrete. They're what we would refer to as objective. They're promises. They're things that we look forward to that are absolutely, again, unshakable, certain, cast in concrete, not going anywhere. These are the objects of our hope. And the reason that I've got to talk about these things and then our attitude toward those things is because none of us understand hope. You see, we all have a worldly hope. Let me express it for you. I really hope my kids turn out. That is a hope so sort of thing. I really hope my grandkids are okay. That is a hope so sort of thing and that is not what we've been saved in. You see, what we've been saved in, in biblical hope, is concrete truths and realities that we never question. We know them with absolute certainty. So I have to explain it in this detail so you can move away from the hope that you rest in and put your hope in God's kind of hope. So the first thing is, these things in which we hope are objective, they're real, and yet we cannot see them. Notice how he describes them in verse 24. In hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? In other words, the things that God has done for us in all of their fullness, we don't have them yet. We can't see them yet. They're promises that stand before us, but because they are the promises of God, they are unquestionably true. They are... More real than the things that we experience in our present tense life. They're so true. But all of them look forward in what we refer to as eschatological things. And we can find them all throughout Scripture. In fact, look back up in verse 23. Romans eight twenty-three, The last part of that passage. Waiting eagerly for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. There's a truth that we wait for in hope. We're going to be redeemed. We're going to be raised from the dead and we're going to receive a resurrected body. And you're like, how do you know that? Well, Jesus already has. He was the first fruits. He's the one that has gone before us. He's the one that walked out of the tomb three days later. He was the one that was glorified and seated at the right hand of the Father. I know this is true. Because we're in Christ, we have been saved. Therefore, what the Father has done in the Son will be our experience as well. So we hope in the resurrected body, we hope to be redeemed. And that's objective and that's true. It's not a hope so. It's just a, oh, any moment now sort of thing. Let me give you another one. Probably the most significant usage of hope comes in Colossians 127 Christ in you, the hope of what? Glory. Hey, listen, if Christ is in you, oh, you have an absolute promise from God that you will rest in glory and that you'll be glorified. We have a hope for glory. It's not a hope so. It's an absolute certainty that glory will be our experience. How do I know? Look at Christ. He's already gone before us. He has been glorified. And because Christ lives in you as a child of God, we have a hope for glory. And it's coming tomorrow. It's not a hope so. Just a couple of more. First Thessalonians 5, we have a hope of salvation. And you're like, how can you have a hope of salvation if you've already been saved? Again, it's in the sphere of hope. You've tasted salvation. But listen, when Jesus appears in the sky, you're going to know salvation like you've never known it before. You're going to be rescued from sin and death like you've never experienced. You'll have no experience with death anymore. You have fully and finally experienced salvation to its fullest context. And so we have a hope. And the last one is in in Titus 3.7. So that being justified by His grace, we would be heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We're going to have eternal life? Is that a hope so? No, that's not a hope so. That's absolutely sure so. That we have a hope of eternal life. And not only that in that passage, we've been made heirs. You're like, how do you know that's for certain? Because Christ Himself is the Son who is the heir of all things. And we are in Him. So when we talk about the fact that God has done something for us, He's instilled hope in your heart. He tied that with your salvation. It is inseparable. You have been saved, but you have been saved in the realities and the promises of hope. And they're true. They cannot be changed. Now, if I were to ask you this question, and these are some of the things that I found fascinating, what book in the New Testament would you find more references and more discussion about hope than any other place? And you better say Romans. And you know why it's so obvious? Because Romans is all about the gospel. And in the gospel, we receive all these promises. The gospel describes for us everything that God has done for us in grand and glorious details. And that's why Paul's got hope all over this book. Because all of those are for us. We can't see them, but we have a hope for them. And we know that they are coming our way just as soon as we see His glory in the sky. Now, that's one side of hope. I told you there were two sides of hope as we dwell in this period of being in hope. And the other side of hope is the feeling of hope. Subjective hope. The experience of hope. That's where we struggle sometimes. Now, if you'll notice with me in verse 25, I think he gives us the clearest definition of this side of hope. Look at Romans eight twenty-five. But if we hope for what we do not see, here comes your definition, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. That's what it means to be saved in hope. Because we have these truths that are unchangeable, but yet we have this attitude for which we look forward to those things with eager anticipation. Anybody other than me want to go home this morning? I can't wait. And what's caused that attitude within my heart has nothing to do with me. Don't look at me as if I'm mature. Look at the reality that the Spirit of God has created this heart within me that longs to want to go home. And not only that, he's tied hope together with perseverance. I persevere in this attitude of hope because it's the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit within me. All of us persevere waiting eagerly for the return of our Savior or the moment that we pass from this life into the next life so that we can see the face of our Lord. pretty famous pastor passed away just the day before yesterday. And to hear his final words were so encouraging. They were literally, I just want to go see Jesus. He'd had fourth stage cancer for about, I don't know, three years now. And it finally got to the place where it took his life and he was in his early 70s. Listen to his testimony. I guess it was the last recorded words he said and he wanted to encourage the church. And he said, I just, I'm just ready to go see his face. And you're like... How does a man who's dying have that kind of attitude within his heart? It's because the Spirit of God had worked it up, that he had such a hope, he knew it to be so certain, and now his attitude had turned toward those things, and that was the only thing he wanted. I just want to see his face. I just want to be with my Savior, the Lord Jesus. Now again, there's your definition of verse 25, and I've already kind of told you, But who's the one that continually works on this side of hope? The attitude of hope. Now, if you remember when we started Romans 8, verse 1, we immediately started talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And if you'll notice verse 26 real quickly, it's the ministry of the Holy Spirit because He's interceding on our behalf. So in between 1 and 26, we've got the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And in the middle of that, He introduces the idea that our salvation is tied with hope. And so we begin to understand that it is the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit to manifest this hope, to grow this hope, to produce the fruit of hope in our life. Now if you wanted to say it absolutely concrete, turn with me to Romans 15 and look at verse 13. I want to show you how Paul closes out this letter. Romans chapter 15, verse 13. Look at Paul's prayer. Now may the God of hope, see that? This is what he's done. Fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. You've got both realities of everything I've talked about right there. These are the things that God has done. He is a God of hope. He has set these things in heaven. And they are ours. And yet Paul prays that we might abound in hope, the attitude of hope toward those things through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit. So when we suffer... And we begin to lose hope, and our faith begins to crumble, we feel like. Where do we turn? We turn to the one that God has placed within us, and beg the Lord to manifest and renew that hope within us. That once again we would become excited about the things that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ and get our eyes off of this world, our eyes off our circumstances, our eyes off all the depravity that we're surrounded with and set our eyes on Jesus. Because that's where our hope lies. And that's exactly what the Holy Spirit is doing and wants to do in your life. So why don't we just beg God for it all the more? Because He lives in you if you're saved. And this is what he does. Now as you're headed back to Romans 8, I'll remind you of an example of hope that Paul gives us in Romans 4. You go back to Romans 8, but I'll mention a promise in Romans 4. Romans 4 is when he was talking about Abraham, right? Abraham was given a promise by God that he was going to have a son. And there was a problem with that, right? Oh, he's about 100 years old. That's not going to happen. His wife's in her 90s. Her womb, it says, is literally dead. But yet God gave him a concrete object of hope. You're going to have a son. Abraham knew God well enough to know, I'm going to have a son. I might as well go ahead and get ready and put the baby the baby bed in the room because I'm going to have a son. The reason I know that is because God has said so. But listen to how he describes his attitude of hope. In Let me turn back. In hope against hope he believed. In other words, in the reality or in the sphere of hope, Abraham believed against all hope. In other words, if you're Abraham's friend, you're going to try to comfort him and go, Son, listen, I don't know what you feel like the Lord said to you, but the reality of it is, it ain't ain't going to happen. I mean, you might want to think that he was talking about somebody else, or maybe you just ate You know, Mexican before you went to bed last night and you had a dream. But yet Abraham held fast in his attitude in hope because he knew that the object of his hope was absolutely certain. I'm going to have a son. So in hope against all hope, Abraham believed. That's the attitude that the Spirit of God is working in you. When life gets difficult and rough, Here comes the Holy Spirit working against you and you have this view in your mind that wrestles against it that says these things are simply not possible. I'm never going to get away from this. I'm never going to be able to fight through this. This thing is going to overwhelm me and yet the Spirit of God begins to work in hope against all hope and renew that belief in your heart and your life. Do you see what wonderful things our Father has done for us? In hope, you have been saved. And you live in the reality of this wonderful hope. Last question about hope. And I told you I'd spend more time with this than anything. You know, we've planted blueberries. And and there's a trick to this. If you get the pH right of the soil, and it's got to be more acidic than what's on Sand Mountain. And you change the content of that soil. You can't just have sandy soil. You've got to throw some organic matter in there, namely peat moss and you keep those plants watered, you're going to have blueberries all over the place. You're going to have more than you can pick and more than you can give away. It's just the reality. You get the dirt right, oh, you're going to have blueberries all over the place. Now let me ask you, what's good dirt for hope? Because the Holy Spirit is growing hope within you, but there's a dirt, if He gets it right, you're going to have hope blooming all over the place. What's that dirt? Let me ask you, what did he just talk about in Romans 8? Where did I leave you last week? Suffering and groaning. That's where hope grows. If you want God to manifest hope in your life, you're you're going to go through some very difficult days. But you're going to have a hope that is absolutely unshakable, that's got fruit all over the vine. I think Nathan had you turn for me to Psalms 42. Run with me there real quickly. And the only reason I do this is because I think this is the last Psalm that we talked about on Sunday night. Some of you missed it. Some of you hadn't seen it yet. But run with me to Psalms 42. And I want to show you what happens here. And then I'll move on to the second promise. And I promise those will go quicker. Psalms 42. Look at verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night, while they, my enemy, say to me all day long, Oh, where is your God? These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. And then notice verse 5. Why are you in despair, O oh my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again, looking forward, praise Him for the help of His presence. Now, where in the world did He get that kind of hope? He got that kind of hope from tears that were flowing from His eyes, not in day. He got that hope from the persecution of His enemy. And this phrase is repeated throughout this psalm. Look look at verse 10, Psalm 42, verse 10. And notice what he says there. As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? Notice his response. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God. I shall yet praise Him. Now as you're on the way back to Romans 8, that's a tough reality, is it not? But that is the reality. God has saved us in hope. He's given us objective truths about hope, but now He's producing hope. And the way that He produces hope is through difficulty. But He grows that hope faithfully. And we can trust in Him. That's the first thing and I got overwhelmed with that thing. But let me move on to the second thing. In Romans 8 verse 26 and 27 is the second thing that our Father has done for us in this interim period. Notice Romans 8 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows the mind, knows what the mind of the spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. In other words, the second thing that the Father has done for you in this interim period is place His Spirit within you to intercede on your behalf. Now, listen. There's some difficult words and phrases in this passage. And anytime you find difficult words and phrases, people typically pick up those phrases and words and they run with them in the direction that they want to go. We're going to try to not do that this morning. I'll leave questions where questions need to be left. But the first interesting thing is that people argue about is in the first few words where he says in the same way in verse 26. In the same way as what? Paul just kind of drops that there. But I think if you continue reading, you'll explain that in the same way the Spirit also helps. In other words, it's the Spirit that's helping you with hope and now it's the Spirit that's helping you with weakness. You see, we're still in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, an interesting word here is the word groaning too deep for words. And it literally means this. That's the word in the Greek. It's a sigh. It's not audible. I, I don't, did he say a word? I don't think he said. I didn't hear a word. It means not understandable. If he said something, I have no idea what he said. I think he just went. <sighs> so this is what this word literally means. Groanings. Now you can imagine what some would do with this passage. They would to run into the direction of speaking in the tongues. Because it's too deep for words. Therefore, it's got to be tongues. That's not what this is talking about at all. But here's the question, if that's groaning, then who is groaning? Now, Chances are you have King James or NAS or ESV, and they quickly describe groaning as the Spirit of God. But we've also had groaning from creation, we've had groaning from us, and if this is true, now the Spirit of God is groaning. Now to understand that word, I told you last week, creation groans, but you can't hear it. You don't hear the trees outside groaning about wanting the kingdom of God to come, yet the text says that they groan, wanting the kingdom of God to come. You and I groan because we want to be redeemed. So we're groaning. But He's left someone here, either the Spirit is either groaning, or some feel like He's interpreting our groans. I'm okay with either way, because sometimes when life is so difficult, we can't find words, and we just weep in our soul. And if anybody's going to translate that, it would be the Spirit of God on our behalf. So the Spirit, no doubt, is interceding for us, but this is, He's doing one of two things, and one of two things can pop up in the text. Either He's praying for us, or He's teaching us what to pray for. Either way, it's pretty glorious. You see, there's some problems in this text. But there are two things that jump out at us about this text that are not problems at all. They're absolutely wonderful. And the first one is the word helps. You see that? English, man, that just doesn't get it done. This word is used once in your entire Bible. Right here. It's got a root with two prefixes. And the root lambano means to just grab a hold of. You just grab something. It's got a prefix, ante, which means in behalf of or on the place of or in place of. And then it's got a prefix, soon, which either intensifies it or it means together with. So this is what the Spirit of God is doing. And let me give you two pictures. And I think they're both glorious pictures. You're under a load in weakness. And it is the Spirit of God dwelling within you that gets on the other side of that load and shoulders that load and together. You carry that load. Now that's a pretty good picture. But I like this second picture better because you got the word in place of in here. You're under a load. You're carrying that load. And the Spirit of God lifts you and that load. And carries you along. You see, either way, the load is too much for you to bear. And if it were not the Spirit of God, you could not bear. And so the Spirit of God helps us by shouldering that load For us and with us. Now, the second wonderful word is, or wonderful phrase really is notice our weakness. First of all, weakness is singular. When I said weakness, you probably thought weakness says, and you probably thought, boy, I got them. We all have them, right? No, it's singular. We're all in the state of weakness. We're all still in the flesh, and we're all in this state of weakness. And I say this because some of you look around the room and you go, I, I'm not as spiritually mature as you know, Jeremy over here. I don't have it together quite as well as Miss Burma does over here. And Man, I tell you, I'm just dragging tail way back behind here. No, we're all in weakness. We're all in the same state of weakness. In fact, if you look at the word our, who did Paul just include? Our weakness. Paul says, me too. I would never look at the Apostle Paul as if he were in weakness. I'd be like, man, you talk about strength. Look at that dude. Paul's like, no, you don't understand. The Spirit helps us in our weakness because this is the state in which we all exist, suffering, groaning, and waiting. So those are the challenges, but look, quickly, let me give you three things about this, these two verses That is absolutely amazing. And here's number one. The Holy Spirit of God lives in you and intercedes for you. I can't get over that. He is literally called the paraclete, which means a helper who has been called alongside of you. Remember that was Jesus' prayer in John 14. If I go to the Father, I'll ask Him to send you another helper. And He did. You've got someone in you that is going to safely see you through to glory. No question about it if you're a child of God. He might have to carry you on His shoulders the whole way, but you're going to get to the other side if you've been born again. You have someone who intercedes for you. Another wonderful reality about these verses, notice verse 26, We do not know how to pray as we should. In other words, if you want to don't not understand that and, and take it in a, the way it's not meant to go, he's not talking about, we don't know how to pray, we need to speak in tongues. No. It means we don't know what to pray for. Yet you have someone who lives in you that knows exactly what to pray for. Let me give you a quick example of 2 Corinthians 12 when Paul talks about the thorn in his flesh. And this is so important to help you understand some things in your life. Listen to this. Paul writes, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I begged or implored the Lord three times that it might leave me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Here's a wonderful example of the Spirit of God interceding on Paul's behalf. Lord, take this thing away from me. I can't take it anymore. The Holy Spirit. Lord, don't listen to Him. If you take it away from Him, He's going to manifest Himself in pride. He's going to exalt Himself. Don't take it away. Second time, Paul. Lord, take this thing away. I can't take this thing anymore. The Holy Spirit, Lord, if you take that thing away, Paul's going to be filled with pride. Don't take it away. Third time. God, please, I'm begging you. Paul weeps. Take this thing away from me. The Spirit of God turning to the Father. Father, don't take it away. And then Paul finally gets it. Father, I'm so glad you didn't take it away. Because if you had taken this thing away, I would have been filled with pride and dishonored you in my life. God, I boast about weakness. What you have done has been good for me. And I praise you all the more. If the Spirit of God was not living in you, God just might answer all your prayers. And let me tell you, you don't want that to happen. Because some difficulties you absolutely need because God is producing Christ in your life. And you need them. You don't want them. In fact, you probably hate some of them, yet God has determined in His wise sovereignty that you need them. And so the Spirit of God begins to pray. Notice verse 27, the very last part of this passage. He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And He knows it without question. Aren't you glad that the Lord has given somebody in you that knows exactly what you need to produce Christ in you? Oh, we need to be careful with our prayers. We need to be careful for what we ask God for. But thankfully, we have someone who intercedes on our behalf. Last thing the Father has done. He's given us a promise. Look at 8.28 for me. Romans 8.28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Y'all, this is, not, this is not your average promise. In fact, I could argue this is the grandest promise that you're going to find, at least top five in the Scriptures. This is a powerful promise of God. In fact, the first word in the text, I believe, is in the emphatic position because Paul wants you to understand the first word. Look at the first word. Knowing. He even put it in a perfect tense. You stand in the state of knowing. And when I read that and began to see that, I began to argue with Paul. I'm like, Paul, if we really knew this, we would never complain. Paul, if I really knew that God works all things to the good, I'd never fuss about anything. I'd never whine. I'd never cry. I'd never ask you to take anything from me that I didn't like. And yet Paul says, you stand in the state of knowing. And I would say, Paul, no, I think we stand in the state of forgetting. We know this to be true. But I don't think we know it nearly as deeply as we ought to know this. Because if this right here is true, the only thing left for you and I to do is sing and praise and go about in joy and thanksgiving. If we really knew this promise to the depth of what Paul says that we know it, there'd be praise on our lips all day long because of this wonderful promise. Now let's get into the promise just a few moments. I'm almost done. Please, I appreciate your patience. But notice what God does. God works. Stop right there. How about that? We thought that He worked six days and He sat down and He rested. Now you need to understand for His children, He works day in and day out every single day. This is what God is doing on your behalf. The one who created the heavens and the earth personally works on your behalf. How about that, in order to see you through the other side? And notice what God is doing. He is working in all things. Nothing is left outside of the Maker's hands. Everything. And He's working all things, it says, to good in some way. And it does not say that all things are good. That thorn was not good. Paul's like, no, this is a messenger of Satan to torment me. This is not good. And the father's like, I I understand that. But what I'm doing with it is good. Cancer is is not good. And if any of y'all get weird around here, praising God that he gave you cancer, I'm going to be like, no, no, you're weird, man. I'm not there and I don't want to get there. But I do know what God will do with that cancer in your life is good. Ain't that right, Julie? Julie? It's good. Can you believe what the Father has done for us to get us through this period of time so we go running into glory, not missing a thing? God works all together for good. So the last thing is, and I'll leave you with this, He he did this for everybody? Does He do this for everybody? No. There's two phrases that modify who He does this for. For those who love God. God. Now, I don't know if you missed that, but back in Romans 1, we talked about those who hate God. They are haters of God. You see, they've rejected the Lord Jesus Christ and God has given them over and they've become haters of God. We haven't rejected Christ. We've run to Christ and therefore we are described as the lovers of God. But it's not just that. The last phrase, notice with me, why is it that we love God? Well, it's because He first loved us. To those who are called according to His purpose. I'll leave you with this. You know why you love God? Because God has done a work in your heart when He called you. This is the effectual call. This is not my call. I call you all the time. Turn from your sins and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I do it often. But when the Spirit does it, you come running. You see, I talked to Brooklyn. I explained to her the gospel. I called her to believe in the gospel. But that wasn't the call she needed. She needed the Spirit's call. She needed the effectual call. And when he called, she came running. That's what we desire. That's what we need. And for those who have heard that call, this promise stands for all eternity. God has given you a promise, God has filled you with his spirit. And firstly, God has caused within you to live in the realm of hope, anticipating what is coming. Last thing, have you responded to the call of God? I told everybody from my son to Brooklyn to White, don't resist when he calls, go. In fact, I told my son, just say yes. And I told you this before, I know many times, I would preached a sermon on missions, and I got finished, didn't even present the gospel. Jonathan came walking up to me, and he goes, I said yes! What? God saved me, Dad. What? God called me, and I said yes. Amen. Young people, maybe older people, when He calls... You throw everything in your hands up in the air and you go. Because you cannot possibly imagine all the wonderful things He is going to do in your life as a child of God and all the wonderful promises that you have waiting in store. Let's pray.